0: My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be preaching from that passage that was just read. I want to let you know if you'd like a Bible to use in the service or to take home, we have those available near the front and back doors, so you can get up now and grab one. This is our last sermon in this series we've been doing called Rooted, which is looking at some of the core values and practices that animate us as a church and the church around the world. And today we're looking at hospitality. So let me pray as we look to God's word. Lord, we need you to speak. We need your words this morning. So Lord, speak to us and give us ears to hear. Lord, would you challenge and comfort us through your word today? And would all of the thoughts and meditation of all of our hearts together in my words this morning be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, it was on April 27th of this year, the last day of Passover and a Sabbath morning, that a 19-year-old man by the name of John Ernest drove to the San Diego suburb of Poway with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle in his car. There he entered the Jewish synagogue called Kabad of Poway, and at approximately 11.23 a.m., He opened fire on the worshipers there, a group of about a hundred people. Killing one, wounding others, including the rabbi. And the manifesto that he posted before the attack was full of racist ideology, hate, and xenophobia. He claimed that his attack was an act of war, an act of racial war where his tribe had been offended and he was planning on dying to defend his tribe, and he's not alone. There are many others like him. He himself was inspired by other attacks that he referenced in his manifesto, most of them young white men, mostly socially isolated and looking for a tribe to belong to, and the tribe they find is a tribe of hate and xenophobia. In an age of fragmented communities, in an age of radical individualism, community, when it's taken away, is often replaced with tribalism. It's what David Brooks calls, um, it's why David Brooks said that tribalism is the evil dark twin of community. A pastor put it this way, and he's citing Psalm 68. He says, if God puts the lonely into families, individualism puts the lonely into tribes. And that's what we've seen happening in our culture. A loss of community, a rise of tribalism, and a rise, it appears, a rise of crimes of hate. But what does this have to do with us? We might say, yeah, but but I don't commit those crimes. I don't participate in this violence. But if we look closer, we'll realize that that the violence is in our hearts. The fear of others, the fear of the stranger, the xenophobia is in our own hearts. We fear what we don't understand. We fear the stranger. But I also bring it up because this young man was, was one of us in a way. He belonged to a church much like ours, an OPC church. If you know the denominational language, you know that's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we have a relationship with that church. It's a church very similar to ours. His father was a ruling elder in that church. The church met on the campus of Westminster Seminary in Escondido, in their chapel. So the shooter in this case was one who had been raised in the church, and so it hits close to home for us, and, and it calls us to examine ourselves, to look not just at the violence, but at the, at the hate beneath the violence, to repent of it. And honestly, his manifesto sounded familiar to me, because I've been in the church long enough to know that, that we often have a way... Of operating in, in a sort of tribalism ourselves, I hear the way we talk about our perceived enemies. Even even our Christ, Christian perceived enemies, our theological enemies, we tend to, to criticize and to fear. And in his manifesto, he criticized a lot of the things that I have heard criticized in the church. He lambasted the media or Hollywood. He lambasted the government. And I notice in the church, we often do the same things. We often um, denigrate the people that we perceive as threats, whether that be other religions, the way we talk about Muslims, the way we talk about the LGBT community. We often talk as if a war is happening. Now, I say this not to condemn this man's family or his church. In fact, in his manifesto, in his letter, he said, it's not their fault. It's not their fault. And I can't imagine the pain that they're going through. But I think his acts of violence call us all to examine the hatred and the fear of our own hearts and the way we talk about people who are different from us. The way we talk about the other. Now, What in the world does this have to do with hospitality? And why do I bring it up now? Well, I think it has everything to do with hospitality because it has to do with the way we relate to strangers, the way we relate to the other. Even that word xenophobia, if you know what that means, it means the fear of the xenia, the fear of the stranger. And the word hospitality in the Greek is philoxenia love of the stranger. And so as Christians, we're called to replace this default setting of xenophobia and to repent of it and to live in philozenia, in hospitality, in the love of stranger, the love of the other. One pastor and scholar, Greg Thompson, um, said that, that we have a long heritage and calling of hospitality in the church. He said from the, the century, the, from the second century to the 16th century, from North Africa to Scotland, from Spain to India, if you were a traveler, a pilgrim, a sojourner, a stranger, traveling by land or by sea, and coming upon your city, you would be scanning the horizon for one thing. Do you know what it was? You'd be looking for a cross, a steeple, a cathedral, a monastery, because you knew that where the cross was, you would find hospitality. You would find a warm bed and a warm meal that someone would take you in. See, that is the Christian call. That is the way that Christians are commanded to relate to the stranger, not in fear, but in love. And that love is borne out in tangible acts of caring for the stranger, caring for the one who is not of our tribe, caring for the one who is homeless in a way, who is sojourning through life. But we have to ask ourselves, do people still associate the cross with hospitality? Do they still associate the church with the love for stranger? Or do they associate us like everyone else in the world who is afraid of the other, afraid of the stranger? Thompson goes on to say that <clears throat> that we've lost We've lost our hospitality instinct. He says, in the secular age of the 21st century, while our neighbors continue to wonder through the perils of this world, they are no longer looking for us. The light that they seek comes not from our lamps, <clears throat> excuse me, the greetings they crave come not from our mouths, and the food that they praise is not on our tables. The beds that hold their bodies are not in our homes. They are not looking for us any longer. And it seems to me just as equally true that we are not looking for them. Our lanterns are out and our gates are closed and so our tables are barren and our beds are empty. And it's very tempting to ask, what in the world has happened? But the more important question is, what must happen now? The church must recover its vocation of hospitality. We've got to repent of our fear and live in love for the, other, for the other. We've got to live lives of hospitality. And to do that, I think we have to understand three things about hospitality to recover this Christian vocation. I'm going to give them to you up front. The Christian call to hospitality is a theological posture It's a spiritual practice, and it's an embodied proclamation. So it's a theological posture. What do I mean by that? Well, if we look at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews, again, the author tells us, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, even that command, show hospitality to strangers. I've already said hospitality means the love of strangers. So it's almost redundant. It's to add, to put a finer point, show the love of strangers to strangers. He doesn't say don't love within the church or don't love your community. No, let brotherly love, which we all know is the Greek word Philadelphia, The love of brother. Let brotherly love continue, but do not neglect the love of stranger. And then he tells us this bit about angels that confuses a lot of people, right? Now, I know a lot of people may hear this and think, well, if I, you know, somebody could be stopping by our church and I better invite them out to lunch because it could be an angel. And if that is an angel, then maybe God will bless me. If I can take an angel out to lunch, then that's going to get me some extra spiritual blessing. Or that angel is going to communicate some word from God to me. So that could be what he means. Um, Other people have said, well, no, the Greek word for angel is just messenger. That's what the angels were in the Bible. They are messengers of God. And so this is not talking about an angelic messenger, but an earthly messenger. because, Because Rome has messengers all throughout the empire, And so if you show hospitality to a stranger, it could be a Roman messenger, and that could garner some blessing for you or some blessing for your tribe, even. Because they're wanting to know what we're up to, and if you show them hospitality, they will treat us favorably. But I think it's actually pointing back to, to, to an older story. It's pointing back to the book of Genesis where a man named Abraham was called by God, and God visited him in this weird story of, of three angels visiting Abraham, and Abraham cooked a meal, he made bread and killed an animal to feed them, and they ate together under these oaks of Mamre in Genesis, and and he showed hospitality to God, and so what the author is saying here is. There's this long tradition of hospitality in the Bible and I want to point you to it. See, in other cultures, <clears throat> if you're familiar with history, you know it's not un- it's not uncommon for honor and shame cultures to have a strong culture of hospitality. You can actually read Roman stories of people who showed hospitality to a to a, a peasant begging for bread and then that peasant be- was actually one of the gods in disguise. And so it's not an unfamiliar story to these people, but the thing that makes it different is that, that in the Hebrew and the Christian tradition, they are called to show hospitality to everyone, not in case it's God, but as if it were God. You should the, the reason why Abraham is, is held up is not because God caught him on a good day when he was feeling good and he had some extra food and he decided to show hospitality. So Abraham lived in such a way that he showed this type of hospitality to everyone because he believed that everyone who bears the image of God should be treated with dignity and respect. In fact, the entire Bible is a story of hospitality. That's why we have to recover hospitality as a theological posture if we want to recover its Christian calling. Because if we just see it as something extra for us to do, some other command, some other law to follow, then we'll do it when we have the time and the energy, but we won't see it as part of who we are and who we're called to be. See, the entire story is, uh, of the Bible is a story of a God who is a host. In the beginning, he creates guests, Adam and Eve, and he creates all this food for them. He says, take all this food and eat it. Genesis 1 reads like a menu of all the foods that God has given Adam and Eve. And he sets them at the head of his table. And he says, I'm I'm setting you at the head of the table of all creation. And they ate. And they were with God. But then they rebelled against him. And they became strangers themselves, exiled from the garden. And God still pursued them because he wanted them at his table. And the entire story of redemption is a story of a God who is a host, who is eagerly looking for people at his table. He wants to bring people to his table. That's why one of our favorite Psalms, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Did you notice that halfway through the Psalm, the metaphor changes from shepherd to host? He sets a table for me. See, the God of the Bible is a host who desires guests to eat with him at his table. And those guests that he brings to his table, as we look throughout the covenants of the Old Testament, they're not just guests, they're servants to go out and gather more guests to come into his table. That's why, as was read earlier in Leviticus, God commanded the people of Israel to show hospitality, to love the stranger, the sojourner, those traveling through. And he put a spin on it. He said, because you were strangers in Egypt, show hospitality to the stranger who sojourns among you. And so the entire Old Testament is the story of a host who, who wants people at his table. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. And what does he do? How does he bring about this new kingdom? Luke 7 tells us that the Son of Man came eating, and drinking. That was his strategy for preaching the kingdom, to go to parties. In fact, his first miracle was at a wedding where he turns water into wine. And and he saves the wedding host from shame and points to the better host and the better feast and the better party. And the entire ministry of Jesus is centered around meals, it's centered around tables, and his parables are about banquets and food and vines and figs and he he turns uh, he, he creates bread and fish to feed the masses in the wilderness to host a banquet for them. And he institutes the church with what? With with this symbolic ritual of a meal. And he promises to give his presence, where? At, at the table of communion. And the entire New Testament is, is moving history to this banquet. That the, the God who is a host, who desires to have companions at his table, sends out his church into the world to gather more. Because he wants more people at his table. Because a feast is coming. Every day, every week, every hour, we are closer to the feast. This is the story of the Bible. I'm not, I'm not putting this on the Bible, right? It ends with a party. It ends with a banquet. And we have to see our God as a host who has graciously invited us to his table. That's the only way we'll recover the calling and vocation of hospitality to see ourselves as undeserving guests and to see the world as potential dining companions at the feast of the lamb. It was the thing that Jesus said before his death, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you, to celebrate the Passover with you. And God desires more people at his table. So, Hospitality is a theological posture. Underneath the meals and the beds and all of the practical, tangible things that we do to show hospitality is a posture. It's a posture of love. Love for the other, love for the stranger. In the Old Testament, it was love for those passing through the nation of Israel. For us, it's love for anyone who is different. For anyone who is the other, who is not one of us, however we define us. And there are lots of ways to be different, right? It doesn't mean just the person who's passing through because, you know, in our day and age, we, we have hotels. We have Airbnb, except for in the city of Santa Barbara. It doesn't allow it. Um, we have, like, clandestine Airbnbs, if you didn't know that. They, they still exist. Um, So, it may not be someone's passing through and we take them into our house, but if you have a posture, a theological posture of of hospitality, of love for the other, that means that you will be seeking the other wherever he or she may be found. Not just to give lodging, but to give welcome, which may be the generosity of listening. It may be lunch, it may be a meal, it may be fellowship. It may be money, it could be lots of things, but underneath there is a posture that this person before me who is a stranger to me is not a threat and an object of my fear, but an object of my love. Not, listen to this, not in spite of the differences, but because of the differences, right? To love the stranger means we find those who are different, whether that be Different nationality, different ethnically, different um, personality-wise. There are lots of differences. Cat people, dog people, there are lots of differences. And when you see someone who is different from you, your, our impulse should be love. This is a stranger. This is someone for me to love and invite to the table. Now, we can't do that. We can't live out that posture unless we make that and see that work as a spiritual practice. Verse 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect means that it could be neglected, right? The author of Hebrews is saying, don't forget this. Do not neglect it. If you just go to your default setting, you will default to fear. And this is at a time when the church is being persecuted, and there's a lot of good reasons to fear. And he says, do not default to fear. Show love to the stranger. Do not neglect it. So for us to not neglect hospitality, we have to make it a spiritual practice, which means we have to find ways and rhythms to invite it into our lives, opportunities to show hospitality, It's one of the reasons we gather to worship in the way that we do every week, because every week this service is an act of hospitality. It's a spiritual practice of hospitality where God graciously invites us to worship with the call to worship. And he speaks to us and he listens to us and we sing together. And then he brings us around his table in communion and feeds us in this feast which is the high point of the service, and then he sends us out into the world and blesses us with a good word. This entire service is a a practice of hospitality. It's a feast set by the host of heaven. But we have to do uh, not only communal practices, but personal practices as well. Um, And there's a great book. I stole the title um, for the title of the sermon. It's called Hospitality, the Simplest Way to Change the World. One of my college classmates wrote it. It, um, If you're looking for ways to to incorporate hospitality, then pick up that book, borrow it from me. It it tells you how to put rhythms, putting it on the calendar, looking for holidays like Thanksgiving. Obvious opportunity to love the stranger. Because how many of you now are already anticipating the political arguments you're going to have around the table on Thanksgiving? what better chance to show love to the stranger than Thanksgiving? What harder place to show love to the stranger than Thanksgiving? Look for rhythms to make it a part of your life. But if we can neglect it, we have to ask, why do we neglect it? And I want to just mention two reasons that I think we, um, I think we neglect hospitality. Um, And and by that, I mean not just the posture of hospitality, but the practice, the tangible expressions that involve bread and wine and plates and beds and bedsheets, that involve money and tablespoons and salt and cinnamon and sugar, that involve um, credit cards and trips to the grocery store, that involve conversations with people that, that you don't know, and that are just passing through. Those tangible expressions um, are easy to neglect as well as the posture. And two reasons I'm going to give you, there are many, but the two are idealism and intimidation. Idealism cuts, uh, cuts multiple ways against hospitality. One way is that we say, if I had a bigger house, I could do this. If I had a family, I could do this. If I didn't have a family, I could do this. (laughs) Listen, I have three kids. Hospitality is, it's a difficult season. They're young and they take a lot of attention. How do I show love to the stranger when I've also got to show love to these three needy children? It's difficult. It's messy. It's not easy. But our idealism says, if I have the energy, if I have the time, if I have the house, if I have the money, if I have all of these things in place, then I could show hospitality. If I lived some other life in some other place, if I was some other person than I am today, then I could show hospitality. Then I could adopt the posture and the practice of love for the stranger. But, um, but I don't think we actually need all those things to begin. Um, Someone told me this week, your house is never too small or too dirty to show hospitality. Uh, Katie and I were talking about our favorite Thanksgiving we've ever had in the past 12 years was in our smallest apartment in St. Louis. We had 17 people in 600 square feet. We ate in the living room, and the table went from wall to wall. You had to move the table to get around it. There were four ethnicities there uh, represented Um, multiple faiths and and non-faith as well being one of them. And yet it was our favorite Thanksgiving um, because other people came around and said, let's do Thanksgiving together and let's invite some people. Um, Some of the best hospitality I've received, I can tell you about being in urban Philadelphia um, and an old woman from Oaxaca, Mexico, inviting me over to her house and putting a pot of water on to boil, and taking Abolita chocolate and making um, hot chocolate for me, sitting on a plastic chair under a fluorescent light in a small apartment that was hospitality that was and, and she was a stranger herself, showing hospitality to me, the native born um, idealism will kill hospitality if you're waiting for the perfect perfect moment. But let me tell you another way it will kill hospitality. See, so you could hear everything that I'm saying and say, oh, well, if I really want to show hospitality to the stranger, then I've got to wait for, you know, I can't just do this with my friends and the people in this church. That would be Philadelphia. That'd be brotherly love. I've got to wait for someone to pass through. Maybe he was born in... Um, Istanbul, or somewhere else, who is a foreigner, who is passing through, and then I've got to bring that person into my house, or I've got to go out into the streets and find someone that doesn't have a home, and bring them into my house. Only then could I actually be doing hospitality. And that's a good impulse, we, to, to give us a goal for, for something that we're going towards. But I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm going to use a meme as a sermon illustration. Um, 2019 is like the year that the pastor got his hands on the meme. Um, have you seen the the like Real Housewives and the Cat meme? <clears throat> just raise your hand if you've seen that one. Okay. That was enough for me to continue. <laughs> There's this meme that's going around with like a woman who's like really impassioned and she's yelling across the table, and on the other side of the table is the smug cat just staring impassioned back at her. And so people like to put the, the, the passioned response on one side and the cold hard truth, the dispassioned response on the other with the cat. And, and pastors have gotten their hands on the meme this year, meaning that I've seen lots of these that are like slightly disgruntled pastors talking about people in their church with high hopes of doing things like hospitality. So the impassioned woman says... Um, I want to serve God and go overseas and be a missionary. And the cat says, You won't even stack chairs. Or the woman says, I think God is calling me to start a nonprofit. And the cat says, You haven't even volunteered at anything in the past year. Or the woman says, I think God is calling me to ministry. And the cat says, You skip church when it rains. (laughs) And I I think it's relevant here. (laughs) I'll tell you why. Because we think, I'm going to go find a person who does not have a home and does not have a meal, who lived in another country, was born in another country, and I'm going to do hospitality that way. Or I'm going to start a nonprofit to do hospitality. And this smug cat says, you won't even invite someone out for lunch. You won't even... You won't even invite someone over for coffee. You've never had anyone over for a meal in your house. Don't start with a nonprofit, a 501c3. Start with just an an ordinary act of extraordinary love. Jesus says, just a cup of cold water in my name is enough so it's not that we, we only are called to love the stranger. We, we practice hospitality among the church. You, you may need to practice hospitality by finding the stranger on the other side of the church. You may need to f- practice hospitality by loving the stranger in your house, your roommate. You may need to practice hospitality by loving the stranger in your marriage. Wherever there are differences, we are tempted to fear and hate. And those are the very places God calls us to love. So don't wait for the ideal time and don't wait for the ideal opportunity to show hospitality. We had the invitation to to host some international students. That was an an ordinary way to show um, hospitality to the stranger, to the sojourner here. If you really want to serve God, think about it this way. If you really want to serve God, bake a cake, brew a pot of coffee, light the grill. This is the simplest way to change the world. And it's the way the gospel has spread from the beginning. The Son of Man came eating and drinking with tax collectors and prostitutes, and he was called a friend of sinners. That was the way he preached the gospel. Another reason that we neglect hospitality, the tangible practice of hospitality, I believe, is intimidation. <clears throat> fear of other people, we've already mentioned. It's also the fear of what it will cost. And even though I just said it's ordinary and simple, that does not mean that it does not cost you. Hospitality, community at any level is always costly, it's always costly. Not just our coins, but our time, our attention, our emotional energy. Hospitality will always cost you because love, love will always cost you. Doesn't mean it doesn't give you great benefit. Doesn't mean that, that you don't get something out of it, but it is costly. Um, one of my heroes of hospitality and, and ministry in general um, is the couple Francis and Edith Schaefer. Some of you know them, know their names. I always associate them with hospitality because they in the 60s began to open their home, a chalet in Switzerland, up in the mountains, up in the Alps. They began to open their home to strangers, to people who were passing through, and they would give them a bed, and they would give them a meal, and they would talk. They would ask questions, and their motto was honest answers for honest questions. And much of the evangelical intelligentsia of the 20th century passed through their doors. Many people were converted around their table. But when he was asked about how to do this and what sort of program do you start and what, what do we do? How do we build this like thing? They, theirs was called Labrie. Their home was called Labrie, the shelter. How do we build a Labrie here? How do we build a Labrie in Santa Barbara? This was his response. He said, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you, in the name of Jesus Christ, do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. He said, Labrie is costly. If you think about what God has done, that what God has done here is easy, you don't understand. In about the first three years of Labrie, all our wedding presents were wiped out. Our sheets were torn. Poles were burned in our rugs. Indeed, once a whole curtain almost burned up from somebody smoking in our living room. People of all colors and races came to our table. Everybody came to our table. It couldn't happen any other way. Drugs came to our place. People vomited in our rooms. In the rooms of Chalet Les Malaises, which was our home, and now in the rest of the chalets of Le Brie. You see, you don't need a big program. You don't have to convince your session or board. All you have to do is open your home and begin. And there's no place in God's world where there are no people who will come and share a home as long as it's a real home. We just have to begin. We have to begin. It takes virtue to do hospitality, to practice it, but it also cultivates virtue in us. It takes love of stranger to do hospitality, to practice hospitality, but it cultivates within us a love for the stranger, and that is why it's a spiritual practice. It is a discipline for us to know God, to know his heart, to love his world, and through it we proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's also an embodied proclamation. If we're going to understand how to recover hospitality, we have to see that it's an embodied proclamation. Verse 14 gets at some of our motivations. It says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. See, we too are strangers. The author of Hebrews asks us to see ourselves, every Christian, even if you are a native Barbareño, even if you live in your hometown, if you're a Christian, you're called to see yourself as a stranger, as a pilgrim, as one who is passing through this city, passing through this world, this life, that you have a true home. The true home is in God's kingdom, and that kingdom will someday descend from heaven with Jesus to earth as the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And that's the city that we live for. See, we love the stranger when we realize that we are strangers. We are spiritually homeless apart from God. We are the one who is passing through the sojourner. Before God came and sought us and invited us to his table, we were strangers of God, enemies even, rebelling against him. And he came and sought us and he brought us home. And we're going home and there's a feast at the end of the journey. And in that feast, we'll sit at the table of the Lord because of the merit of Jesus who died to bring us there and rose from the dead to defeat all of our enemies so that on the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast that's at the mount, mountain of the Lord, the veil that is over all of us, the veil of death will be swallowed up forever, Isaiah tells us. Revelation tells us that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. And there will no longer be hate. There will no longer be any intimidation or fear. Love will reign. Love will reign And at that table, there will be every nation, tribe, and tongue eating, celebrating, feasting as pilgrims who have found their way home through the blood of Jesus and through His grace. And there will no longer be enmity between them. There will no longer be fear and hate or violence, but there will be harmony. There will be Philadelphia, brotherly love. There will be no more strangers. We will all be sons and daughters of the king, sitting at his table, the host of heaven, who has journeyed a great distance, sojourned a long way to bring us to his table. And that is what we do every time we offer a meal or attention or a conversation to someone who is a stranger through love. Every time we do these acts of love, we are proclaiming that city to come. We're proclaiming that this earth does not satisfy me, but the city of God is where I belong. That is my true home, and, and I will make it my life mission to get there and to invite others. So every glass of wine poured, every bed offered, every dollar spent in service to the city of God, and service to his kingdom, proclaims that kingdom that's not of this world. God is our host Jesus is our Savior who died to bring us there, and someday we will be home. So let us live this radical Christian. Let us recover the act, the practice, the posture, the calling of hospitality so that we can proclaim that kingdom until he comes. Amen.